and welcome to the Glass Moon podcast. In each episode, we take a look at how we can humanise the workplace. Conversation with fascinating guests sharing their huge experience on what it really means to build workplaces fit for humans. In this episode, we're tackling the rise of the human organisation. And joining me as always is my partner in conversation, Carol Edmund, founder and CEO of Glass Moon. Hey, how are you? Um, we have a new puppy. So I'm a bit tired. It's been like having a oh. um, having a new kid. Yeah, the middle of the night, uh, getting up to let the puppy out. It's been yeah, literally like oh my god, it was like back to when Amber was a baby. But um, yeah, no, it's it's fun actually. It's good. She's gorgeous and stuff. And Amber's been brilliant. My teenage daughter's been fabulous with her. So it's um, but we moved house and then the new puppy. We picked it up so two days later. So it's just like uh, so anybody who moves and gets an eight week old puppy within a few days. Um, just prepare yourself for exhaustion. Exhaustion, can't even speak. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm well, thank you. I'm well, how's, how are you? How was your, you had a holiday, didn't you? I did, I did. As soon as we were uh, allowed to escape, we, uh, we went down to, to Devon. It was, it was quiet, it was beautiful. It was uh, a different scenery as well. So yeah, fantastic. And um, I have seen a snippet of your gorgeous new puppy. And she is, she is beautiful, but I'm not surprised you're exhausted. So, uh, yeah. Um, and, and with us, albeit virtually, of course, is, is Dan Kieran. Dan is a husband, father of three, soon to be four, I understand, and the co-founder and CEO of the award-winning publishing platform Unbound.com. He is a writer and editor of 13 books and travel journalist for The Times, Guardian, Telegraph and Observer. He has given talks and lectures on various publishing and tech conferences around the world, universities and for the EU Parliament on a range of subjects from creative writing, political activism, entrepreneurship, publishing, well-being, disruption and how to have ideas. So a lot going on. Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, very good, actually. Yeah, very good. Um... Lucky, I haven't. No one I know has been really badly affected by COVID. So for me, it's mm. been um, a brilliant reset on my life, and um, yeah, I feel very fortunate, very grateful that that's the case. So yeah, no, I'm feeling brilliant. Thank you. Good, good. Yeah, it's uh, definitely time for reflection and, and reset uh, in amongst the strange times. But um, so I, I want to dive. I want to dive straight in, straight into our subject: rise of the human organisation. Um, and I want to just pose a question to you Dan first you know surely we are and already have human organizations don't we uh, I mean if we don't who who's who's actually running the place <laughs> what does it really look like a truly human organization it's a really interesting one isn't it I think it yeah we definitely sort of put on our anti-human clothing to go to work I think that's one of the problems isn't it that you you find it very hard to be yourself in a working environment so I suppose a truly human organization is one where your kind of your sense of identity doesn't become collateral damage, I suppose, in, in your pursuit of your career or your, the way you work. Um, it's very hard, I think, to see them um, truly human organizations. because I think there are so few of them. Um, mm. but yeah, it's like we all, I mean, I have lots of theories about why we do it, but I think we definitely have a sense I think it's I think it's to do with suffering as virtue. I think we all have this kind of cultural context where we perceive suffering as virtue, and therefore work is a sort of a punishment, but it's a kind of punishment that 
we're almost proud to be suffering in or something. Yes. I think you get presenteeism and I think there's lots of that kind of work has that flavor. It certainly has for me. I've definitely grew up being told you just have to get on with it, Dan, that type of thing. You know, you get that kind of, Oh, you just got to put up with it. You just got to toughen up. You get lots of that kind of macho wording. Mm. Um, so I think that's why, that's why we generally don't have human organizations. Um, and it's obviously a, you know, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's tragic and it's ridiculous and, it, and all the science says it is a bad thing to be forcing yourself to operate within. Mm. Um, but yeah, but tackling suffering as virtue is obviously a massive kind of inbuilt mindset that we all have, I think. Um, so it's, it's a tough thing to get your head around. Yeah, God, yeah, I, I, that's really interesting, anti-human clothing. And you're right, where is it that, it always reminds me of the... Um, of Cheers, do you remember that sitcom? Many of our listeners may not remember, I don't know, but um, it was going to the bar where everyone knew your name. Yeah. And you, you turn up and you, and you be you. So, so as you say, your identity doesn't become collateral damage. And it is, it's that badge of suffering, isn't it? You know, we used to ask people how they were and they'd say fine, which didn't mean a great deal anyway, but now we say busy. Yeah. And, and it's a sort of the, the 24 seven always on, badge of, of, of that suffering and machoism yeah it's fascinating Carol your your background I mean your background is in deeply human businesses um, and you've you've I've watched I've watched you transform uh, the organizations that you've led to ensure sure that you really build it from operationally the cultures the context so they they really are about human first and I also know of course this is your 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 passion, but also your mission for, for Glass Moon. So what, what for you does the term human organization mean? And, that, and I mean that in both in terms of its purpose and its, its definition for you, but also um, its application. What does it look like in, in reality? For me, it's people willingly and happily come to work. And that might sound like a really low, a low bar. You know, they're willing and they're happy. Um, and I don't mean happy clappy as in like it feels like a country club but they're happy to be in the kind of work and the sort of job um that they're doing because whatever job you're in there's always a customer there's always a user um a patient a resident a pupil student you know there's always somebody largely uh on the receiving end of your work and as you rightly say Suzanne for me it's my entire career from the age of 18 has been in healthcare early education, uh, education more broadly, social care. Um, and so I've been able to see firsthand from a very junior level what it's like to work in organisations that, that treat the people who do the work well and who create the environment and the conditions where um, people can be seen um, as, as who they are. And, and you hear lots of organisations that kind of cotton on to the expression of bring your whole self to work. And then you do. And you're treated like shit and and then so you're actually I actually think you're better not saying that in the first place and really figuring out whether have you got the behaviors have you got the processes have you got the systems that will enable you to be authentic about the bring your whole self to work would you say that and it's and it's awful anything from really toxic environments through to it's not great and I'll probably leave in a year or two but it's but it's okay and so I think organizations just have got too good at putting phone boards on the wall that look like a mission statement or with social media trotting stuff out 
that makes it sound as if they're a human organisation. But, you know, um, I think because I've had the benefit to live in the real world with the real people coming from a very working class background where, you know, I mean, I've got that almost boring entrepreneurial startup story of started delivering news newspapers at 13. Mm. I know what it was like at the age of 13 to have happy customers and no happy customers. And I think that massively shaped you know, that I was treated as a as a young teenager providing a service. I know what it felt like to be on the receiving end of people that treated me with civility and humility and the people that, you know, didn't. And I think having that early experience and then going in a supermarket job where I hated it because it was so, you know, um, I mean, that, you know, that the people that work in supermarkets are phenomenal. And we've seen that through COVID in terms of, thank God, you know, they're there and, and they can work in that environment because that's what feeds us, let's be frank. But um you know basically what I'm trying to say is I've worked in lots of different environments and I've seen firsthand the difference from a young age and you know, as I've gone through my career and I think so to Dan's point about you know having a you know having a job and for me it was kind of you're lucky to have a job then it was you're extremely lucky to have a good job and oh my god forbid you know who do you think you are to have an actual career you know because I was brought up in that that parenting of who do you think you are sort of thing so I think when you're brought up not to expect much and that you're not going to attain much, you know, I didn't go to university until I was 40. Um, you know, I think it gives you a certain sort of mindset about what is possible and what can be done. And when you're on the receiving end of, you know, the flip side of that, which isn't great, you know the difference and you can feel the difference. And so when you're in a position of, of power, of influence, of seniority, you've got two choices. You either be the, 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 the boss that they describe as a or you be the boss that they say, actually, do you know what? Mm. You know, we, we want to work with this person. We want to join, you know, we want to be part of the team. We want to build something that's quite special. And it is a choice, but I think, unfortunately, we've conditioned people so much to not realise it's a choice in terms of how we behave and the conditions that we create for people. And so I think it's, it's recognising that we can do very specific things that create a human organisation or we don't, but it is a choice at the end of the day. It is a choice. I, I can I completely completely agree. I mean, it, it's always fascinated me how we have set up workplaces that actually depersonalize and dehumanize. But um, you're right. I mean, ultimately, if you if you really are happy to go to work, it, it's a sign of intrinsic motivation. Um, and I, I love the fact that you were talking about creating those conditions. Um, and and so much rather than that authentic self, you're hiding your true self. Um, I always remember actually just talking about that sort of limited expectations when I, I first started my sort of career job I've been, I've been like you I've, I worked since I was 13 but my first sort of proper job I suppose you could call it in terms of walking into to the corporate environment was um, in a very small accountancy practice where I learnt my trade um, and that the partner there my maiden name was Bennett and he could never remember my name. I mean, he had six staff. So he used to call me Gordon. You know, so after the, the Australian balloonist, I believe, who actually had a horrific name uh, when you look into the history of him. But yeah, I was Gordon Bennett for years. So I, I think it is, it's, it's just, it's just, uh, I think age and wisdom, but also you're right. We, we, were, we had that, that age of, of where perhaps you didn't expect so much, but you mentioned about those, those foam boards and the, uh, the mission statements and and we often hear the phrases such as put your people first or it's employee and patient centered um you know nobody's going to disagree with those at all but actually do you know what when those mission statements and those values espousing 
wonderful words of human practice, um, it, it's often so different to the actual experience. Um, yet, you know, we're watching our engagement levels drop to their lowest point ever. Um, and actually they're dropping even further. Gallup's just done a, a, a very smaller poll based on their, their last workforce analysis through COVID. Um, but this, this lowest point ever, and so much of that is around indifference, but there's an estimated 73 billion in lost productivity, which equates actually to about 7 trillion worldwide. And we've got workplace stresses increased by nearly 200% in the last decade. So all of these things, we, we, we're getting it wrong. So whilst we seem to say one thing in these you know, posters around office sites, the results don't seem to echo the intention. And I just want to know where we're going wrong, really. So, so Dan, what, what, what do you think? Are we, are we just paying lip service to this idea of the human workplace? Um, and in fact, we've just simply depersonalized and dehumanized how we work. So just picking up on your point around sort of suffering and the machoism maybe. Yeah, I think there's, I think it's two things. I think there's very, very little leadership in work environments. I think there are, the word leader is used a lot, uh, but leaders mean going somewhere first that other people are scared to go. Like if you think about a leader in a, you know, you're, at, you're on a mountain or something and there's a leader, well, they're the one taking the biggest risks. And I think for a lot of people, getting a leadership role is like, oh, I've made it. Now I can sort of put my feet up and I've got to protect the fact that I'm here. And also if you've come up through a working environment that's very macho, top down, aggressive, I need to see you, I need to own you. Mm -hmm. I, I always um, joke that as a boss, I have a kind of default mindset that I'll slip into without realizing, which I call my inner 18th century mill owner, who basically looks around the office and sees staff um, as like piles of money that are on fire. And I think that is a really big problem because that a lot of bosses have that. And that comes from the context of work that you've grown up within. And that's been, I mean, let's be frank, you're taught at school that you should spend all day, every day in a place you don't want to be. So like when I'm seven or eight, I don't want to be at school, I want to be outside, but I have to sit down and shut up. And I think that kind of indoctrinates us to come into a working context where it's like, oh, it's a place I don't want to be, but now I get money for being here. So that, that's what being an adult. And I think, so I think there's that, that's going on. But I also think, as we said, that you have a, you're not just an, you don't only have an inner 18th century mill owner as a boss. I think you have it as an individual which is this, oh, am I working hard enough? Am I spending enough time in the office? Um, am I delivering enough? And I think we get so clouded in that kind of catastrophizing inner monologue around what you are or are not doing and you're, how effective you're being or not being or that your boss is an idiot. I think you just get caught up in a kind of soap opera of your own monologue. And, and so you're kind of imprisoning yourself. Um, and it's very easy to do that because you're in an environment which seems to validate that and reward that. So I think that's why we're in the mess. But as I say, leaders have to say, ah, there's a different way. Um, and you have to you have to deal with your own fear. I mean, I, as a boss, I've had to deal with my own fear around this stuff, too, because I don't just apply it to my staff. I mean, I always have this thing where I, would, I let people work from home. But even that, that I let them like that even that phrase that rolls off my tongue is kind of like, whoa, let's, you know, let's spend some time on that. But I would never let people work from home on a Monday or a Friday pre-COVID because my assumption is that if it's a Friday and I can work from home, I'm going to be on the way to Cornwall at two in the afternoon 
and coming back at 11, 30, 12 on a Monday. Um, but that's my own fear, not a real thing. Um, so, yeah, I think leaders have to step out of their comfort zones and genuinely strike new ground. And luckily, there's this framework of research, and which you guys are so fluent in and have done so much work to contribute to, that kind of shores the confidence leaders can have to make those changes. Because you do see massive results when you're prepared to make a, your working environment more human. But it's very counterintuitive. Um, and I'm in a, you know, I have VC money and investor money and I have their fear of doing something radical and becoming a human environment because it's not what they're used to. So it requires even more leadership to go, I know this is counterintuitive. I know you don't like this, but you've got to trust me because the evidence says it works. Um, so yeah, you need leaders that are actually going to be different, actually act in the way that word defines what they should be doing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating space that we've we've brought ourselves to, isn't it? And and why we why we are where we are, and how we're re reinforcing it through those those layers of fear, starting with the leader themselves, and having that confidence and the tools to be able to really really do things differently. Um, I love I love that, and and I can absolutely that absolutely resonates in terms of your inner eighteenth century mill owner. I love that. So. Yeah, Carol, what do you what do you think? Why do you think we're getting it we're getting it wrong? Yeah, listen, I think Dan's absolutely right in terms of we're just so conditioned uh, because you know we're largely born in a big institution, normally a hospital. We go right in a big institution in terms of school. <clears throat> we're through that through obviously our formative years. Um, that combined with um, our early family experiences in terms of that largely. I mean, how much time do parents spend telling their kids don't do that? no stop it whatever I remember when Amber was was little we used to and obviously I was running Bright Horizon so I had the enormous benefit and privilege of working with people who really knew um you know uh, about children's early years and the different ages and stages and stuff so I kind of listened and learned as much as I could as obviously you know the MD but also as a, as a parent as Amber's mum and we would be in the play part and there was this enormous um climbing frame which actually with my health and safety hat on I would quite often look at it and think oh dear god anyway as she got a little bit older and a little bit stronger but when I say that she's still like two at this stage she heads towards it and our, our, our dad and I were there and she starts climbing it and what you've heard in that play part for most other parents um typically worse if they have girls but to an extent with boys was don't do that you're going too high come down you're going to fall so, of course, me with my kind of sort of reach for the stars in the early years mentality was like, hold tight, you can go higher, you can reach the stars, obviously, fixation with the stars and moon and blah, blah, blah. And, and of course, she did. And so what she got was a reinforcing message to hold, you know, yeah, you need to hold tight, but you can do this and you can go and stuff. And um, parents used to look at us like we were like mad and stuff because the, the messages they were giving their kids were no don't do it, come down, you're going to fall, you're going to hurt yourself and stuff. And you think yeah, that message is constantly reinforced in the institution of sort of family and parenthood. And then as Dan said in school, we're largely told to sit on our backsides, especially for young children at an age where, um, from a sort of bio biology and physio physiology point of view, they don't want to be sat for ages on chairs being told stuff. They don't want to know at that stage. And of course it continues and then we're conditioned, we go into the workplace. And because we've all had that experience, we go into the workplace with that conditioned experience that it is about the clock it's about compliance it's about sitting down and being told what to do because we conform because there's only a very small amount of people that get to call the shots and so 
we're just, we're just so conditioned and we know how hard it is to change behavior um you know and so and i think because the pressure is on and you know we talked about busyness you know a moment ago and it is as you said Susan, it's like a badge of honor to be busy because you know we get to a position where our, our identities are so tied to our work identity of power status um, pop popularity you know and, and i know one of the the templates we've sort of created coming out of um, Ruby and Ruby 7 was the balance sheet of life mm -hmm. in terms of the, how do we just get a much greater perspective a much better balance of yeah we can work hard we can do great work but actually if our entire worth is connected to our extrinsic worth and there's nothing about you know how do I feel and do I have autonomy and, and where's my kind of personal growth in this then and there's just not enough time in the workplace to spend on that intrinsic worth piece it's all about the extrinsic and so that just makes it tough, it's hard. And, and you know, I think to use Dan's word around the kind of reset opportunity, I think with COVID-19, we've got a massive reset opportunity, but as I say, behavior is hard to change. And so you can already see organizations that are in that elastic band state, we're about to kind of bounce back to where they were. And it's not about, you know, the whole, I think I said this on an earlier podcast, that the resilience piece is about bouncing forward because you've grown beyond the point you were at when you went into the kind of, adverse circumstances whatever they might be so I think it's about being institutionalized I think about it's about being conditioned and so therefore that makes it really hard for people to want to do things differently in the workplace because it's not rewarded you know you're quite often seen as an outcast and that is not that's not easy yeah no and 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 we are we are also biologically rewarded to to belong and to but to belong and fit in within social norms but yeah, conditioned, controlled, compliance, conform, these institutions that we, we grow up in, and of course the legacy of, of leadership as to and the history of where it's going. And I agree with you, you know, we we are seeing organizations slipping back. Um, and I think it's really, really worrying. Because of course, as we're recording this, we're we're, we're coming out of lockdown. And uh, you know, whilst it's been extraordinarily difficult time for so many, and there are many organizations out there having to make some incredibly tough decisions uh, commercially for survival, there are also such fantastic opportunities to to just reshape the, the, the to reshape work um, and to truly build, you know, going back to what both of you are saying, to build these human organizations with leadership capability that directly supports human performance and it and it nurtures well-being and it hones the skills that actually are completely inherent in us um, so that we can actually sustain our growth and development into, into the fourth industrial age. And, and just as you said, Carol, you know, the true resilience here is to be able to bounce forward. Because um, I, I really do believe we can move into a space of stakeholder value approach. Um, even for stakeholders without a voice, such as the environment. Um, and we can establish trust and psychologically, psychological safety. And, and that's where our brains, and that's what it needs to work at full capacity, rather than as Dan, you were saying around this fear-based system um, that we see is so prevalent and, and left and sort of left over from not just these institutions, but also this outdated leadership and motivational methodology and thinking. Because we really are, as we move into industry 4.0, we're going to really need this human leadership 4.0. So, Dan, in your workplace, and how have you continued to support 
the workplaces in which humans thrive, your humans that work with you and alongside you. What, what top tips and advice, is, advice would you give for leaders out there to, to build that human organisation? Uh, to be greeted by a lot of scepticism from the people you're trying to um, uh, help's not the right word, but you're, I mean, I've had quite a lot of pushback, um, and not from from not from everybody. Uh, not that we've done anything truly radical, but there is a people take huge comfort from the framework. You know that thing about how um, if you have like an old behaviour pattern that you've picked up through your childhood because you, you relied on it to help you. I mean, the one I always re remember is I, I got attention when I was um, gloomy or complaining. Like that's how I got attention. So if you if you take that out into your life and you start to complain a lot to get attention, you're sort of you're getting what you want because you're getting that recognition. But you're also you're kind of habituating a behavior pattern, which is going to become very damaging to you in your life. Mm. Um but you, but you kind of take comfort from the discomfort of it because you're so used to it, and it's become a strategy that you've relied on. And I see the con, I see the framework of work in exactly the same way. We're all so attuned to it that even though it makes us feel terrible often, and it means your life is run ragged trying to juggle all your responsibilities because you have to prioritize work. Whatever people say about what they value, they actually prioritize work because it's what we all rely on. I find that people find comfort in the work structure even though it isn't helping them mm -hmm. so you sort of have to deal with that head on which is really hard because what you're dealing with there is quite a deep-seated behavior pattern that we all have um so my way around that rather than trying to take that head on is i at work i value um people that are prepared to take on parts of them their behaviors that make them unhappy because uh, i think if you can whether we like it or not, work is where we all spend most of our time. Now, I, I mean all kinds of work, whether it's paid or not paid. Um, so what I do and what I try and instill in the people around me, which I'm finding, which I find very difficult to do because some are receptive and some aren't, is to basically use the workplace as the context within which you evolve yourself. So if you can kind of take on those patterns and become prepared to take on some of those old behavior patterns, then you can start to see that the work structure is one of those behavior patterns. And you start to be prepared to liberate yourself from it. But I'm aware how kind of that can sound a bit vague and stuff, but that's how I do it. And that's how I've done it personally. Um, but there aren't many trailblazers. I mean, you guys are really unusual in the fact that you talk about this and are interested in it. And Carol specifically to have implemented it in organizations that have been tremendously financially successful. Um, that's the model that we need. We all need those models to kind of, um, reassure us that if we're going to take on a different way of working be a bit more radical but it will still work mm. but you have to be very patient and you have to deal with people at a human level and say I mean, one of the things i've had with covid is people are craving certainty and i'm having to have meetings where i'm saying guys there isn't any i can't give it to you and i can't say the things that you want me to say so what, what i can do is help you come to terms with the uncertainty because that's what we're going to have to do. We've got to collectively come together with the uncertainty. So I'm trying to share information around big financial decisions that we're making as a company so that while I'm not removing uncertainty, I'm at least showing them what's going on underneath so their imagination isn't filling the space and terrorising them. Yeah. But it's really tough. It's really hard. I think you have to follow your own instinct and you have to, you have to read up and listen to people like you guys who have done it and have got, you know, 
tires on the road you've got miles on the road having done it and know how it works um so it's you've got to be brave but you've got to listen to yeah yes it, it's um I, I love that 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 piece around using the workplace to evolve yourself and liberate yourself from the things that the behaviors that are making you unhappy um and yeah we we, we our brains love certainty mm. Um, and that craving for it, but I, I think, I think having the bravery, and I, I actually, is it bravery? I don't know. It, it makes so much sense, perhaps, with the research that we've done and the experience we have, to actually show people what's going on underneath, rather mm. than constantly hide it. Because why shouldn't they all be a part of how the business is working and growing, and that they're, and they can see where their role is contributing to that, and coming to terms with the uncertainty around it as well. But it's not a black hole, and it's not a void. Uh, yeah, I so agree. Carol, um, how do you see things changing or, or how do you hope things will changing? And, and coupled with that, how, how are you putting this into practice um, within Glass Moon, this, this human organisation, this human approach? On the first point, if I'm honest, at this stage, my intuition started to tell me that things aren't going to change in the way that we kind of those of us who, you know, we talked about working flexibly and flexible working on the last podcast, you know, how we address some of the sort of fundamental issues um, in relation to why people have such levels of stress and mental health at work, etc. So some of the sort of things that you could say that were having to be done differently, we were forced to do differently in organisations as a function of a global pan pandemic kind of gave, you know, like you and I, Suzanne, we've worked on this for a very long time. We know what some of the sort of the, the keys to the better working life kingdom sort of look like, or what of a probably poor um, analogy or metaphor is like, I just, my sense is that people are just going to try and nudge back to how it sort of was because you have to think about behaviours, processes and systems differently. And in organisations, um, particularly big organisations, that involves an enormous amount of change. Um, we're not very good at change. We don't like change. And so my intuition is it, this isn't going to be the game changer that I think a lot of us hoped it was going to be in terms of seeing, seeing the way, so to speak. And so that makes it even more important for us and, and Glass Moon and the work that we're doing with you, Suzanne, and, and you know, the people that we're involved in. And it's brilliantly refreshing to talk to Dan today, just as it was Eve last week in terms of talking to people who can see how it can change, who want to be part of the change, who are bringing in some of the change and seeing the benefits and things. It's, it's really, truly energizing, actually, to, you know, to talk to people that have got that mindset and that perspective. So I think in you know Glassman, if I think specifically about Glassman services, because of, out of all of the models that we're working on, that's the sort of most tangible in terms of it's a proven market, it's a proven sort of business model in terms of what we're doing there. But what's not proven is how do we do it completely differently to how it's um, been done in the past. And Kerry and I had a, a really refreshing conversation with um, some very senior commissioners last week about the geography that we're looking to go into. And it was just brilliant to be able to talk about our ethos and our philosophy and have a positive reaction, unlike the reaction I've had pre-COVID, which was like, why would you do that? You know, a lot of the stuff that actually, to be fair to these guys, I don't think they would have said, why are you doing that pre-COVID? Because they could, you could just tell, they could just see what needs to be different in terms of, but we started talking about what we're doing and we started with the people who are doing the work 
not even the sort of um, the people who are being received a service, you know, the customer, the service users, um, depending on what language you like in that context. And I think that that was a bit of a surprise in terms of saying, no, we recognise we've got to get it right for the people that are doing the work, because if we do that, it's real. Anybody that remembers um, years ago, the service profit chain, it's real kind of get, get the basics and the fundamentals right. And that becomes about for the people that are doing the work. And so if I just say really, really quickly, you know, one of the most fundamental pieces is making sure we eat our lunch when it comes to working flexibly. You know, because we're going to have big staff teams um, we're going to have people working, you know, we're going to have 24-7 shifts. We're open 365 days a year. So if ever there was an environment to, to test, can things be done differently? Can they be done from a really kind of person-led, um, person doing the work-led, humanistic, inclusive design perspective? We've certainly set ourselves a challenge in terms of doing it in quite a, quite a tough context. But that's part of the, the the sort of opportunity for me in as much as, you know, I've always liked to challenge. And I think if we can prove we can do it here and we can improve the outcomes for the people in receipt of service, we can improve the outcomes for the people doing the work. Basic things like, you know, you know, flexible work and peace, the pay, tying that into people if they're, if they're receiving um, uh, benefits in terms of trying to create a system where people can get the shifts that they need to manage everything else that's in their life and all the um, identities and priorities and a very simple one of the areas from a social impact um, point we want to measure is can we do this in a way that reduces people having to take very expensive payday loans stopping them having to go to food banks on the way home from a long shift you know really basic practical things that a lot of people just absolutely take for granted that they don't have to do that they don't have to think about those things and I think with what we're going to see in terms of increasing unemployment levels more people will have to contemplate um, you know, uh, supporting the, their families and, and that sort of way. And so we're trying to build a system that means we do, we create a really good work environment. And, and it's not, you know, it's not about the phone boards. It is about the really practical things that is making a difference to people's lives as a function of working in an environment where people that spent a lot of time figuring out how can we do this differently and how can we do this differently at a really meaningful level. Because can you imagine you've put in a 10 hour shift with people with very complex needs and you're earning a wage that means that on the way home you've got to stop by the local food bank just so that you can um, give your kids their tea that night. I mean, it's just, it's hard to believe in the 21st century in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, that's what people in social care, that's what people in, we've seen it in childcare, that's what people in a number of sectors, that's their reality. And so we think if we can create an environment where that's simply, it, it doesn't have to be like that. As, and, and, you, and the stress that you remove, because we know that if you've got financial pressures, that creates all sorts of issues for people at work. And when we're in an environment where people being present and, um, you know, really bringing their whole self to work in terms of, you know, creating the right environments for people um, with complex needs. It's so important, you know, from a quality, from an outcomes perspective, from a health and safety, a risk perspective. But it's just it's just the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so if we can find out ways to do it and we can create the right behaviors and processes and systems because in a nutshell that's what we're talking about it's those three things and if we can find a way to do that and we do it in our own business and then we want to we want to share a bit like the really sort of progressive organizations like the Monzo of the Monzo's of the world where they're sharing where they're learning how to do stuff they're sharing and that's brilliant yeah I mean it's the right thing to do it's just the the fact that that is a reality out there for so many people. Um, and I love your analogy to that key to the better work life kingdom. And the thing is, it, it's completely accessible. We can do it. We can. And going back to that, that, that piece right at the very beginning, it, it's a choice and we can do it. 
So Dan, I just want to actually on a slightly different subject, you, uh, you, you recently joined us on the Ruby 7 programme. So I just, uh, just wanted to tap into that. Is it, what, what, how was that for you? What was the experience? What was the impact for you joining that? It's had a huge impact and it's, it's fascinating because it, um, I think a lot, like a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, there's a, I think we all kind of have an innate understanding of how things should be. And the kind of structures that we live within don't allow it. And I think there's that, that gap drives everybody crazy because there's kind of no logic to it. Um, so what I've loved most about the Ruby program is that it's filled that gap. It's kind of shown me how I can connect, how I understand things should be and how I can be successful in the world in the sense that I can do the things that I want to do and have control of my life. Um, and I think work is the biggest hindrance to that currently because it is this sort of, I live and I work. It's this idea that that's separate, that you are cutting yourself in half and there are some of your life that you like and the other bit you don't like, but it facilitates the bit that you like. And that has always felt wrong to me. Um, but it's been very hard other than winning the lottery or being born rich. Um, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to find a way of squaring that and of kind of crossing that gap. So for me, Ruby has, it's helped me do that. It's helped me have more faith in my own kind of innate understanding of the world but it's given me a framework to kind of cross that divide so like it so i mean there are specific examples of that like i'd never really thought about how i use my time in terms of that i'm effective in different ways at different times of day um and that's now completely radically changed my structure so every day between eight and ten i do now i now know that's when i'm at the best version of myself <clears throat> in the sense that whatever i have to deal with i can handle um, so that's when I deal with the biggest problem or biggest work thing I have that day, or it might be a relationship or it might be to do with my kids, but when I need my optimum brain on something, that's, they're the hours that it's going to show up. And I never thought about that before. And, and I found that incredibly liberating because it's basically freed up the rest of my day. Cause it means I start the day with a great sense of achievement. Cause even if I haven't fixed the problem, I know I've given it my full attention and I will have made progress. Um, and then the rest of the day I can deal with all the inevitable things of things that are on fire or emails or whatever meetings and that kind of thing which i'm not in control of um so in a so kind of in a practical way that's really helped um so yeah but it's the collective it's this idea it's almost like a kind of map like i talk about it as a compass quite often because i sort of feel like it it helps you work out where you are in your own mind and where that is within the context of the the world that you're navigating through your daily life whether it's childcare and marriage or ex-wife in my case as well as wife and um, I think you and your work and your different responsibilities you have in your in your working environment um, as a boss but also as a you know someone I'm an employee but I'm also an employer and I have investors and I have all these different roles I have to have but in the end it all comes down to being comfortable in your own skin because all of those things are possible if you're comfortable in your own skin so the work starts in a deep way in a you know, you've got to go, you've got to go deep in yourself, I think, if you want to get your head around this stuff. But it's really a compass that helps you on that journey. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really thrilled to have done it. And I'm thrilled to be working on how we can bring it to a, to a wider audience, as many people as possible. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I love the compass, the map analogy of it, but also that, that integration of 
of all the parts of us mm. um rather than this i've always had an issue with we mentioned on the last podcast but work-life balance you know I, work is a meaningful part of my life i want to integrate all of me yeah and I think re retirement's a real problem. My friend Matthew DeBatha is a brilliant writer. He describes retirement as the secular afterlife. Right. That you kind of kill yourself yeah. until you're 70 and then you get a break. And that's actually something that's happened to me in, because I have th with three children, 15, 10, three, and another one on the way. And I've sort of done the maths that by the time they're all 25, I'm going to be like 75. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, so that's when I get to travel the world and do the things that I want to do. And of course, that's not going to happen. But what that means is I'm now thinking, okay, well, I've just got to do it now with all the kids. Yeah. Like I can't wait. I've got to make my life work now. Yeah. So, and it's that, it's that putting off who you are and want to be because of the work obstacle. Mm -hmm. That's what we need help with. We all need help to kind of integrate that and remove that obstacle and stop seeing it as an obstacle and find a context we can do it within that is aligned with who we are. Um, that could change the world. That's such, such an exciting thing to be tackling and taking on. Yes, 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 definitely, definitely. We only have now. Right. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. So thanks both so much. Your experiences are, are so incredibly valuable and rich in advice and wisdom and guidance. I, I think I could, I just want to keep, keep keep the conversation going um but but for me one of the key takeaways from everything that, that you've said is is ultimately we, we we have a choice i see it almost like we do have this proverbial blank piece of paper we are able to rewrite rewrite how we work um you know how we can imagine and bring to life a workplace that nurtures and works with human wiring and to be able to create cultures of trust and, and true inclusion i mean after all you know where we are is actually human made so perhaps we can think about human remaking it. So if you'd like to know more about the tools, knowledge and the programs we deliver to help you establish your human organization, or you'd just like to share your thoughts, then please do get in touch. Check our website for more information at glassmoon.co.uk. Thank you all for listening. Remember to share, leave a review, subscribe, and check back for any episodes you may have missed. So till next time, take care.